PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. In my mind, that was a motivating minute for me because I said, what are we doing? How are we doing it? We have to activate flexion. The spinal cord can process that sensory information and pretty much knows what to do. I think it's a wonderful example of neuroplasticity and the effects of intense practice. Welcome to this PTJ podcast discussion. In the May 2008 issue of PTJ, Dr. Andrea Behrman and colleagues published an article about a child with chronic, severe, incomplete spinal cord injury who regained independent ambulation after an intense locomotor training program. Dr. Behrman discusses this case, along with Dr. V. Reggie Edgerton and Dr. Irene McEwen, who are also the authors of the published commentaries which accompany the research report. Here is our moderator, PTJ Editor-in-Chief Dr. Rebecca Craik. I am delighted to be here today with such a distinguished panel. Today we're going to discuss a paper entitled, Locomotor Training Restores Walking in a Non-Ambulatory Child with Chronic Severe Incomplete Cervical Spinal Cord Injury. The lead author of this paper is Dr. Andrea L. Berman. Andrea is an Associate Professor in Physical Therapy at the University of Florida and a Research Health Scientist at the Brain Rehabilitation Research Center, which is part of the Malcolm Randall VA Hospital in Gainesville, Florida. Thank you very much for inviting me to join you all today, and I appreciate that on behalf of our collaborators and our locomotor research team. Dr. V. Reggie Edgerton is Vice Chair and Professor in the Department of Physiologic Science and a Professor in Neurobiology at the University of California, Los Angeles. Dr. Edgerton's current research interests are centered around two topics, neural control of movement and neuromuscular plasticity. Thank you very much for the opportunity to participate in this discussion. I think it should be interesting. And finally, Dr. Irene McEwen, who has so many titles at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. Irene is a George Lynn Cross Research Professor and has the Ann Taylor Chair in Pediatrics and Developmental Disabilities and Physical Therapy. She is also the Director of the Lee Michener-Tolbert Center for Developmental Disabilities and the Director of the Post-Professional Graduate Program in Physical Therapy. Thank you, Becky. I really look forward to this conversation. Welcome. Briefly, what Dr. Berman and her colleagues did was, and I'm going to say it very briefly, locomotor training with a -a four-and-a-half-year-old boy who had a spinal cord injury and was not considered ambulatory. The intervention began 16 months after the injury and continued for 16 weeks for a total of 76 locomotor training sessions. He was able to attend kindergarten using a walker full-time, walking an average of about 2,500 steps per day with a maximum gait speed of approximately 0.5 meters per second. This is a truly remarkable case report, and I'm looking forward to the discussion that follows. Andrea, just to start us out, one of the things that you talk about in the paper is an Asia C lower extremity motor score. Can you tell us what that means and what implications that has for this case report? Yes. And ASIA scores from the American Spinal Injury Impairment Scale. And the motor score is a standardized way of describing motor impairment or function after a spinal cord injury. And then we have the lower extremity motor score. It is traditionally used to say if someone is going to be able to walk. 
What you're looking for typically in the literature is someone should have a motor score of 30 or above for us to say an individual would be a functional ambulator. In this case, the child had a motor score of 4 out of 50 for the bilateral lower extremities. So you would not predict that that child's going to walk. As we look at this, one of the key elements was that the child had a motor score of 4. Then there was a training and intervention. And what's intriguing is the motor score did not change. Often after an intervention, you might say, well, he must have gained some strength or voluntary motor control. What's intriguing is that didn't occur. What he did show, though, was when you asked him to extend his leg or straighten it, so using your quadriceps, he showed a pattern of extension at the hip, the knee, and the ankle. It's a posture that many people would say, oh, that's spasticity. So he did have some way of turning something on, and the Asia does not have a category for describing that or testing that. So I think that, this is Reggie, I think that we already know that the Asia score is a very gross predictor of one's ability to recover from a spinal cord injury. When you ask the subject to exert a certain amount of force, that's clearly a voluntary effort and perhaps originating from the cortex. Now, we tend to think that all of our movements are originating from the cortex, but in fact, that's not the case. It's pretty clear that individuals can generate reasonably well-coordinated activation of the muscles and some stepping ability without having any input from the brain, and that's because the spinal cord can process that sensory information and pretty much knows what to do when it receives sensory information associated with weight-bearing stepping. So that ability of the spinal cord to process that information in the absence of any input from the brain um, uh, is not included in any type of Asia scale. Our idea that we make up our mind to make a movement that's originated in the cortex and that goes down to the spinal cord and tells all the muscles what to do, that is just a part of the story and it's certainly not the only story and that's probably the reason there's a remarkable level of recovery even though it's not reflected in voluntary effort. So Andrea, can you talk about the dose of exercise training that was used to help this child go from sitting in a wheelchair to independent ambulation? Yes, and it's not that we know what that exact dose should be. We had a protocol that allowed for 45 sessions of training, and if there was no plateau, we could continue another 45 sessions. This was five times a week on the treadmill. We expected to have about 20 to 30 minutes of actual stepping and 20 to 30 minutes of actual standing time. And then when we came off the treadmill, there was probably between 10 and 15 minutes of what we call an overground assessment and continuing to train and help the family carry out some of the same concepts and principles in the home environment. So could he stand outside of the training environment with assistance, things like that. So I can't say there's a magical dose yet. And I think, in fact, it may be dependent upon many factors, for instance, the severity of the lesion. We don't know what pathways were specifically spared and if that made a difference. 
It could be the type of injury. This child had a gunshot wound, and in children, they're often these stretch injuries to the cord. I don't know if that makes a difference. In addition, I think it's important to note, as was reflected in the mother's comments, was that the mother and the family were quite committed to carrying on whatever they could outside of our hour-and-a-half training session. So that kind of family support and mentality that says it may take us a little longer to go from this bedroom to the kitchen, but we're going to do that. And because you're walking now and have a walker, we're going to take that time and we're going to take those steps. Irene, do you want to say anything about what Andrea's just commented on? Well, first I want to say I was really impressed by the improvements in this child. I think it's a wonderful example of neuroplasticity and the effects of intense practice. I have to give the family and Andrea and your team credit for sticking with it long enough to make it happen. And the families obviously had a tremendous commitment to this child and to seeing it works. And Andrea, I also wanted to say that I really appreciated your thoughtful and helpful response to the questions that I had in my commentary. I asked a lot of questions that I thought that clinicians might ask. Your responses, I think, were really helpful. And I particularly thought that the mother's response was helpful and was informative, describing her commitment to the process and the hard work that it took. I think one of her things that she said was, we worked hard to help him be as independent as possible. The other thing that I thought was really interesting was that the mother made it clear that when he was working with you, he was having fun. I loved her comments about, what was it, a home improvement store that you chased him around in? Right. Did you actually do your intervention in, you know, those kinds of settings? Okay, that was a bonus. (laughs) I loved it. I thought it was great. That was a little field trip at the end. Basically, the mother had already taken him to the home improvement store and just said how much he had liked that. And I said, well, we're coming along then next time. I just wanted to see what he was like in that environment, and then we just took advantage of the environment. While we were inside, it had rained, and he came out, and he was, I want to go through the puddles. I want to go through the puddles. So off we went through the puddles um, and took advantage of that moment and just that natural motivation. His goal was puddles. We were walking. Great. We'll do that. I think that's one of the things I learned about working with children versus adults. There's so many ways to be imaginative that it seems to me gets their nervous system going different than an adult because you can tell a child that, you know, you're going to run like Dash from The Incredibles and he envisions it and starts to do that. There's something different, and I know a pediatric therapist already knows something about this, It is very interesting, the difference in working with a child and an adult. And Irene, just to comment on one of the things you'd said was about sticking with it. Can you imagine if we stopped after 20 sessions? Uh We could have been done really after 20 sessions. I asked the father if he'd seen any change and he said no. And I said, I agree. They're very slight in his trunk control, but very slight. In my mind, that was a motivating minute for me because I said, what are we doing? How are we doing it? We have to activate flexion. If we don't activate flexion, it's not going to happen. I think it was important, too, that you just didn't continue doing the same thing that didn't appear to be making a difference. You really thought through it and tried to figure out what it was you needed to do to make a change. That's exactly right. It's not that we did anything dramatically different, but just reminded ourselves what was critical, what was key what we needed to have as far as sensory input and the way we were providing it, things like that. 
So, Randy, yeah, think- what do you think in terms of specificity of training? Can a child who does ambulation training using a treadmill use the same kind of stepping pattern on other surfaces, or does that require activation of different neurons within the motor neuron pool, Reggie? And, and then how about going up and down stairs or crawling? Well, there's obviously common pathways that are being used, but I think, yes, there'd be slightly different pathways that are activated to perform a task under different conditions, whether it's walking on a treadmill or walking on a rough surface or even standing versus stepping. We know that if we train an animal to step, they learn to step. If you train them to stand, they learn to stand, but they can't step. And so what I always say, spinal cord learns what it's taught, basically. So some of the things that we saw happen was that he was now able to step to generate this stepping pattern. To date, he has stood for maybe 20, 30 seconds independently, but he doesn't stand for a long time independently. He did not have a good idea about stepping backwards, but we didn't train backwards. He has, a year later, though, shown some other reciprocal-type patterns, and they're not ones that we sat there and specifically trained, although he was put in an environment where he could do that, so if you put him on a bicycle. And early on, that is not something he could do. He uses the same kind of pattern in a swimming pool. So I think we helped activate a pattern, a reciprocal pattern, that is likely available to him in other environments. We did introduce stairs to him. And now that we had a stepping pattern, we held his trunk and walked him straight to that stairs, and he took several steps right up that. One leg went a little bit easier than the other, but I was pretty amazed at that ability. Wow. Um, And even the fact that the step was likely higher than his normal step. But there was a generalization, if you will, or a transfer of that reciprocal stepping pattern to stairs. Can he go up a flight of stairs now? He can now, and he has figured out a way to take his walker and do it. Really? So he'll do it without us, some imaginative way. I think about clinicians and what they'd like to know about this child sure. is so much. One of the things, as you had mentioned in the article, that he could not sit to stand by himself. Can he do that now, or does someone have to put him in his walker every time he wants to go somewhere? He can sit to stand now. When he went to kindergarten at first... He could walk in, but someone had to help him in and out of his school desk. And I think they changed the kind of desk to help him a bit, but it was something that the therapist at home continued to work with him on, and and now he can do that. These are the kinds of things that I think a pediatric clinician, particularly somebody who works in a school who wants a child to be as independent as possible in that environment, would be asking about. Was he independently mobile in a wheelchair before you did the training? When he came in at first, he wheeled in. That's how he came to us, wheeling independently. Wheeling himself? Yes. Was there anything else that you thought might be helpful for the pediatric therapist? I thought that the mother's response, I thought, was really helpful, just that bit of qualitative information about what she thought and what she was going through. And I think the PD scores were helpful. You, I think, reported raw scores, but standard scores probably would be more helpful. Okay. Um, but somebody could convert those. And then also just talking about, we don't really have the MCID or minimally clinically important difference, but 
there have been some studies that have looked at the PD with kids in acute inpatient rehab that suggests that a 10 or 11 point change is clinically meaningful and just to help interpret what all these numbers mean. Mm-hmm. You said that you plan to follow him up to age 18, which That's my goal. I think would be fascinating. How are you going to inform the rest of us about that along the way? Becky, I how am I going to do that? Yeah, I was going to ask Becky. Can't the journal right. do something to help us with that? Absolutely. Just keep on writing. That's what we need. The biggest concern that I have about this study, I love what it's showing from the scientific standpoint, but I also am concerned about people who don't understand that this is really a view into the future rather than something that they should run out and do tomorrow. Do you agree or not, Andrea? It's not every environment that has the equipment and the skills right now to be able to provide this kind of intense therapy, and that's one of the reasons the Neurocovery Network was put in place was to help us to look at the barriers in the clinic right now and to solve problems that would allow us to provide such an intensive therapy in the clinic and what can be done there. So that said, one of the reasons why we have the Kid Step Study right now, which was an outgrowth of this, is to try and still take that population that people would designate non-ambulatory. You will not walk. And to look at that population and to understand what we'd like to understand from this child and others is if we provided you this intervention and you did walk, what neural substrates, what neural pathways were intact and functioning or were altered by the intervention that made it possible for you to walk. And at the same point, there may be children that come in and they don't recover walking with this intervention. And in that case, why didn't they recover? So both outcomes are important to us in a different way to understand and better predict in a population of children and or adults who might recover walking from this intervention. This is a behavioral intervention in the long run. I'm sure there are other combinations of interventions that have to do with surgery or pharmacological or stimulation to the spinal cord or others that are still going to require therapeutic intervention that helps activate and reorganize those neuronal pathways around appropriate sensory input. So this is one step in the process. I think it it gives hope. I think parents are eager to hear about hope. I think the vision for the future is what information do we have and how can we think creatively to change the therapeutic environment that will have a therapeutic effect and not just a compensation for some impairment. I'm not sure if that answered your question totally. I hope it gave hope. Well, I think that it means a lot more than hope, I think. But I think it should open everyone's eyes about what can happen. It doesn't mean that this will always happen, but we know that this can happen. I think we should also realize that there are so many secondary changes that can go one way or another depending on whether one is weight-bearing. Whether one has some weight-bearing function or not is going to be closely related to metabolic disease syndrome, the bone mineral density, the cardiovascular function. All of these things are going to be related to the presence or absence of weight-bearing. I think that was a great wrap-up. 
I'm delighted to see this case report in our journal, and I certainly hope that the kind of discussion we have today are the kinds of discussion that we can generate in clinics and in neuroscience labs around the world. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Okay, thank you. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We invite your feedback on this podcast. Do you have any comments, topics you'd like to hear in the future? Let us know via email, ptj at scienceaudio.net, or voicemail, 626-593-7825. Visit PTJ online at www.ptjournal.org.